All right, um, as we get started, and we're started, there it is, uh, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, that's where we'll be this morning. This has been kind of a crazy week for us. Uh, I turned 33, I think it was 33, it's 33, right, yes, good, 33, I got it wrong a few years ago, so I have to double check. Um, and, uh, and then we moved this week, and so there's a lot of craziness, and so much so that this morning I realized I'm wearing one of Laura's socks. <laughs> one of mine, one of Laura's, which I was just hoping no one noticed in Sunday school as I crossed my leg, and I was like, wait a second, this has got a, like a, a, a fancy pattern on it, that doesn't look like mine. So I'm a little, I'm a little frazzled uh, today, so, so forgive me for that. Really appreciated what you had to say, Paul. Really appreciated that. Daniel chapter 5, um, verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of them. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines, which I feel like has got to be like an awkward situation, be like sitting down at the table and me just saying, Lord, hey, th- yeah, these two girls, these are my girlfriends here, which don't feel like would go over well. Just, okay, no, okay, just double, I was pretty sure it wouldn't, but that commitment thing, right? Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple and the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and in stone. Belshazzar, as we see in this text, I think is deeply prideful. I feel like being really blunt today. And pride is vile. It is an abomination. It is this word that we've suddenly resisted and no longer become fearful of, but what the Bible describes as something incredibly fearful. But the the pride that he experiences here is definitively sin. It's sin. Pride is vile before the Lord, and we receive these bits of wisdom in the book called Proverbs. And Proverbs universally condemns pride. It's, it, it's interesting, as you read through the book of Proverbs, you get kind of doublets. And this is the way they wrote. And so they would write one line, and then they would either repeat the same line underneath, kind of uh, reordering the words, or they'll give you a little more detail. And so the first line we have is, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Which makes sense. If God hates evil, we want a relationship with God. We need to hate what he hates and love what he loves. And so then it goes on to say, what is the thing that God hates? And we would kind of like, if I asked you, what food do you hate? What food are you going to, what food are you going to name? Right? The very first, the one you hate the most. You're not going to say, well, I kind of don't like eggplant. No, you're going to say, I hate whatever. I can't think of anything I hate off the top of my liver. Do you say Bread? Oh, Brussels sprouts. I thought bread. I was like, who can hate bread? That's insane. Get out of here. So the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. And what's the first thing that he puts up there, folks? Pride. I mean, and that's odd because you think it like, like murder or adultery. I mean, there's a lot of other sins that he could have chose, but he didn't choose those other sins. He said, first, I hate pride. And second, I hate arrogance. And they really go together, don't they? 
I hate pride and I hate arrogance. And we're not going to talk a lot about these other things, but the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate those too. Pride is a characteristic of the resident resident, as we see here um, in Belshazzar. And the resident resident is captivated by these things we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, which say this, For all that is in the world, and here it's not talking about, it's, it's using the world sort of metaphorically, all of the things and priorities and allegiances and, and all of these things that we've been talking about over the past several weeks, all of these things in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. These are not from the Father, but they are from the world. So we see in the, the, the king of the world at this time, Belshazzar, this, this guy who's so great and powerful and rich and mighty, we see in him uh, primarily at the beginning, I love, this, I love this story in the setup because I kind of view it like a stage. Uh, but he's got a thousand of his people, of his friends and his wives and his concubines, these beautiful women and these beautiful men and everybody you know, in their regalia, a thousand of them. And what does it say? He stands before them and he drinks wine and just watch me drink this wine. Like, this is how cool I am. I'm so cool. You ca- I'm captivating you by just you know, drinking from this, this cup. And then he says, uh, this cup isn't good enough for me. I need all of the, the goblets and the gold and the silver from my conquered peoples. And let's drink from this, everybody. And so we see this great sense of pride. But I see pride in small people as well as great people. I mean, how many of you met somebody who's a... Who, who, who you see pride and arrogance in them, and you got, what do you do, have to be proud about? Like, you haven't done anything, and yet you, you huge chip on their shoulder, right? So great and small, I think pride is just a, a, a situation that we as humans are all wrestling with to some extent. Um, to some extent. It is a part of our society especially. And God... In wanting to undo this curse, this pride that we find in our life, reveals to us the shape of the life that he wants us to have, and that is most especially seen in guess who? Jesus, good, yes. I did pick on you, you're visiting, you got it, yes. Jesus, Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and hard, and you will find, does anybody remember? Rest for your souls. I have loved that verse as far back as I can remember. I just, it's something that just, it, it just hits me every time. And I love that last bit of that verse, and you will find rest. Could we use a little bit of that? Don't take it now, right? This is after church, but we could all use a little rest, couldn't we? And there is no rest in pride. There is no rest in arrogance. You have to be the one that's out front. You have to be the one that gets the last word. You have to be the one that's right. You have to be the loudest. You have to be the center star. You have to stand on the stage. You have to have everybody else watching you. You have to be right. And that's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. And so I love what this says is that if we take on Jesus suddenly those things begin to fall away and they, they lose their, their priority. And what we find in Jesus as we're yoked up to Jesus, as we're yoked up to a scripture that, that definitely, as Paul pointed out, I think very rightly, makes demands on your life and yet those demands on your life begin, become joy. And they're nowhere near the kind of shackles 
that pride and sin bring into your life. I love Jesus who says in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus, the one that we boast in, the one who we, we put our pride in, we say it's all because of Jesus. In him there was no room for pride. He said, I am here to do the will of my Father who sent me. And I, I just love that. It's interesting because God's hatred of pride is so deep that as we read in the prophets these visionary experiences of the last days, we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, this line, The haughty looks of the man shall be brought low, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone on that day will be exalted. So all of the pride of life, all the desires of the eyes, all the lust of the flesh, all this stuff that's been dominating our news and our entertainment and our lives and our society, all of this stuff, not just our society, but across the world, all of this stuff will be brought low, will be subjugated, and the Lord alone on that day will be raised up. And the interesting thing, the incredible thing, the wonderful thing about God is that as he rises, he brings the meek with him. And he brings the poor in spirit with him. And he exalts those who have humbled themselves. And he brings along the persecuted. And he rises up. And he brings those of us who have found our faith in him. And so, um, pride is bad news, right? Bad news. But I think there's a problem because as we are regarding this text and thinking about it, we already begin looking down our noses at Belshazzar. We all begin patting ourselves on the back and if we can reach it and uh, and say, well, I'm glad that's not me, right? I'm glad that's not me. The wonderful thing about uh, human beings is our ability to lie to ourselves, isn't it? I mean, we we just lie to ourselves. And that's an incredible doctrine, I think, in terms of uh, when we talk about the doctrine of sin, is that first and foremost, sin is deceptive. It convinces you that you actually aren't committing it. Jeremiah um, 17.9, this is a famous verse. I'm sure you've heard it before. It says, the heart is deceptive or deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick and who can understand it? Now, when we think of the heart, we think of emotions, right? What I feel, and those can be deceptive too, but they're often more honest um, than our will or our conscience. For Jews, uh, for, for the scriptures, the emotion was actually in the stomach, in the bowels. So the bowels are moved, which sounds like somebody's got indigestion. That's not what it's talking about most of the time. Uh, most of the time, it's like butterflies in the stomach. You all have that? Butterflies in the stomach, right? The emotions are there. But the heart is where the will rests, where what I decide to do rests. And so my own will, the decisions that I'm making that I assume obviously are the right decisions, those decisions that I'm making, that will that I have, even sometimes my very conscience itself lies to me and says, yeah, that's a good decision. You should make it. Yeah, you're right. You're okay. You're fine with God. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you don't have that sin. The preacher's talking about the guy in the seat next to you. Jesus tells a parable of a man who went out to sow seeds, and he sows seed, and some of it falls along um, the ground with weeds. And as, as the seed grows, and I love it, it actually grows. The word of God is in this person, and this person is growing. They're beginning to blossom, to flower, to, to, to take root and shoot up, and the weeds wrap around it. And what do the weeds do? 
They kill it off. Jesus says, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of other things enter into it and it chokes the word and it proves unfruitful. And this doesn't mean that people get up and leave and say, you know what, forget God, forget the church, I'm out of here, I'm not interested anymore. No, no, because Jesus says in other parables that the tares and the wheat are growing together, which means something very important, church. I hope you're listening. What it means is that there are people who are sitting in their pew right now listening to me who are saying, I love Jesus, who are singing, how great is our God, who are following along in the scriptures and maybe even underlining it, but because of the pride in your heart, when Jesus sees you, he will say, I don't know you. Because we lie to ourselves. And so what we need to do is we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to ask the real question of, is this an issue in my heart and in my life? Is this an issue in my heart and in my life? And so how do we go about making that kind of decision? Well, I think what we do is we see Belshazzar, who is clearly prideful, but we see the fruit of his pride. And what is the fruit of his pride? It's the illusion of certainty and the illusion of control. I would, be, I would ask the question of certainty. Are you ever wrong? Are you ever wrong? When was the last time you were wrong and you admitted it? You recognized it and you repented of it? If it's, I can't remember when, might need to look into that. The illusion of control. Whatever happens, I have my stone and my gold and my power, and it is surrounding me, and I control all things. Right? I have got this. Only God can judge me. I am, I am in charge. I have got this. What happens when you no longer have this? Do you lose your mind? Do you lose your temper? And maybe the root of that Maybe the root of that is pride. We notice that Belshazzar does what first? He invites a thousand of his nobles, right? All the guys that love to correct to him, right? No, he invites all of his friends. He invites all these people, his wives and his concubines, all these people who are yes men, who are going to agree with him, who are going to, yeah, let's get those things out. Let's, uh, let's drink and praise the gods of all these different things. Let's do exactly what Belshazzar wants. And I see in this a great warning for us. Don't surround yourself with people who always agree with you. Don't make sure you read books by just Christian church authors. You know, one of the things that I hear as a criticism of the church, and it sort of, it, it makes me bristle, because I hate it when people criticize um, the bride of Christ. Um, because the church is the prize to which Jesus is coming to get. You are, I wouldn't be anywhere else in the world, but right here with you. And Jesus says the same thing, only he means it because he died for it. So I get a little upset when people start getting to criticism, criticizing the church, but I think this one might be fair. But we hear a lot of the criticism that in the church we can't ask questions, right? We can't ask questions. We can't doubt. We can't wonder. We can't, we have sacred cows. We have things that are like, you can't ask that question here. And and I think for, I, I'm going to speak for the leadership. Hopefully they won't disagree with me. But I can say for myself that this is a safe place to have doubts. If you can doubt anywhere in the world, you should be able to doubt in the church. You should be able to ask questions in the church. 
We shouldn't be so certain we've got it all figured out and we've got it all right. We should be willing to hear one another out without losing our heads because we're so certain and we must be so controlled because the root of those two things is pride. I don't have everything all figured out. And I doubt I ever will. Yeah? Belshazzar makes this mistake. He makes this mistake and it costs him not only his life but his entire kingdom. What else does he do? The wealthy, the mighty, the beautiful, they together raise their goblets and they praise their gods. And whom do they praise? It's very interesting. They praise the gods of gold and iron and wood and stone. All of these things. And what's, what's interesting about this is that these are not actually Babylon's gods. Like they made idols out of gold and, 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 and wood and stone and all these things. But this is not their gods. And so why didn't they raise their cups to Marduk, the high god of Babylon? But why didn't they raise their goblets and praise Sin, who is, ironically enough, the moon god that was widely worshipped? And why didn't they raise their, go- their goblet to, I'm going to get this, Asar U Lim Nunan, the god of long names. <laughs> Just kidding, he's the god of war. Uh, why didn't they raise their goblets to their actual gods? They don't do that. Instead, they praise the gods of silver and gold. What does that mean? I think that there's something sort of subtle underneath going on here because when I think silver and gold, I think of money, right? Economy, wealth, riches. That's what you mint your money out of in those days. That's how you accumulate and mass its precious metals. And so as they raise their goblets to gold and silver, they raise their goblets, I'm going to argue, to their economic power. And what do they raise their goblets to next? Bronze and iron. What do you do with bronze and iron? You make swords. You make chariots. This is the Iron Age, and we primarily call it the Iron Age because they started making swords and chopping each other to bits with iron instead of the age before, which was, guess, bronze, right? So they praise their wealth, they praise their military prowess and power, and then what do they praise? Wood and stone. What do we use wood and stone for in those days? Houses, buildings, temples, palaces, politics, right? So we have here, I think, something very subtly, a very subtle criticism going on um, as to uh, Belshazzar and what his true and real trust is. His trust is in his money, it is in his might, and it is in his popularity, his political power. And we might make a mistake, I think, in this to... to, to um, Read this then materialistically and say, well, this is a criticism against empirical power, and, and I don't think it's doing that. And what we have, I think, today as a mistake of the Enlightenment is a separation between the physical and the spiritual. Between the physical and the spiritual. We say it's, it's just a job, there's nothing spiritual about it. It's just a company, there's nothing spiritual about it. It's just a politician, there's nothing spiritual about it. It's just a government, nothing spiritual about it. It's just an education system, nothing spiritual about it. It's just a building, nothing spiritual about it. The Bible doesn't take that perspective, and we didn't for about 1,500 years take that perspective either. But in the modern world, we've separated these two, and the Bible is so interesting because it doesn't do that. Um, Paul, or I'm sorry, in Revelation 
we have this very interesting uh, text, which you'll actually recognize some of this line. As this judgments are being poured out upon the people, uh, they don't repent. It says they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. Now, even Satanists these days don't worship demons. Like, they're just atheists who like metal. Like, that's it. I mean... Uh, they're not even real Satanists anymore. So, so my, my suspicion that they're actually worshiping demons is, is sort of, I, I doubt that's actually happening, but what is probably happening is, is they think they're worshiping something, but indeed they're worshiping uh, demons. It says, uh, they didn't worship worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. Have we heard that before somewhere recently? It's only missing iron, otherwise it's verbatim from Daniel here, which cannot hear or see or walk. And when Paul speaks of these things, he's actually speaking directly about idolatry, about the worship that these pagans are doing. He doesn't say, hey, listen, they're not doing anything, just ignore them, they're just speaking to the wind. He doesn't say, don't pay any attention to them. He says, no. He says, I imply that the pagans are... that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I know that this strikes our ears as maybe fundamentalist and kind of crazy, but the fact of the matter is that the Bible assumes that there is an intertwining of all things, that all things have a spiritual connection because either it is breathing or it is used by someone who breathes. I've been in rooms where I say there is something wrong here, right? And I can't place my finger on it. I don't know what it is. But I want to say this, that almost everything is more than the sum of its parts. That's what the biblical perspective is, that everything sort of has a little bit more to it than we assume. And so what we have going on here is that that Belshazzar is referring to his power, his economic, his military, his, 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 um, his political power, and that there is a demonic or spiritual dimension to all of those things. And resident residents these days don't recognize it. They did long ago, but they don't anymore. But resident aliens do recognize it because we hear from the scriptures, especially um, from Paul in 2 Timothy, where he says, listen, everything that has been given to you is good, whether we're talking about property or relationships or space or something as simple as a slice of pizza. Everything that's come to you is good. And so he says, I want you to do something specific specific with this it is made holy by the word of god and by prayer that we recognize that everything we receive this space my relation everything that i do is made holy by my connection to god that it's made holy by the pouring out of the spirit is made holy as i read scripture over it as i dedicate it and devote it to the kingdom of god to the work of god to the fulfillment of his promises through prayer And so, we see a deep difference here between these two two groups of people, the resident resident and the resident alien, that the pride of life is rife and it offers us the illusion of certainty. And it offers us the illusion of control that I am right, that I am safe, that I am good with my gold, with my iron, with with my stone and my steel. I am safe. And this is not just an error in perspective. This is a vile abomination that God hates. And so I would take you to a question I asked last week. What can't you live without? And my point last week was to try to get you to think about the, the, maybe the things that you're doing that aren't good or aren't right or aren't wonderful. But I want to take you to that again because what can't you do without also takes us to what we put our trust in. So what are you putting your trust in this morning? 
Where is that? In light of this pride, God steps in and responds as God often does. In verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand, uh, Daniel chapter 5, verse 5, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts were alarmed. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. And the king then shouts. He says, bring me all of the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. Bring me all the smart people. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me an interpretation, will be clothed with purple, will have a gold chain, will be made the third ruler of the kingdom. And the king's wise men came in, and guess what they can't do? They can't read it, and they can't interpret it. And so they are all together alarmed. They're all together growing pale. They're all together perplexed. In one moment, God supernaturally reveals how weak all of our stone, our gold, and our iron are. And I love how he does it because that might be the most bizarre thing I've ever heard of. A disembodied hand shows up and starts scrawling on the wall. It's Lovecraftian, like it's crazy. Like that, that's, it, it, what is this thing? And, and I, I promised on Twitter, as some of you probably saw as it came up, a poop joke. And I, I've changed my mind. It might be a pee joke and not a poop joke. I don't know. Um, I'll let you kind of guess it. But in my Bible, the way it translates verse uh, 6, the king's color changed, his thoughts were alarmed, and his limbs gave way. And that's this right here. Limbs gave way. Now the problem with limbs gave way, and the problem with Christians, again, this goes back to what I was talking about before, like our, oops, our, our desire to be like in control and certain, and sometimes that kind of breeds prudishness. Um, this is the word and, and this is the word not. So like a not, and so it's used in Daniel where Daniel is unknotting the dreams, like the, the, the Belshazzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, or whoever has a dream, and, and he's not really sure about it. And so Daniel comes and he unknots it. Get it? So it's a not. This is a not. This is the loins. I don't need to, ex- like that. We're good there, right? Good. Okay. Good. And this is loosened. Knotted loins loosened. Now, I don't know what you would make out of that, but I sure wouldn't call it limbs give way. Something gave way, but it certainly wasn't limbs. So I want you to imagine for a moment how hilarious this is if you're a 12-year-old boy, because some of you guys aren't laughing, and if you were 12, you would get this, and this would be funny, because you're telling the story around the campfire, and you're like, and the king stood up, and he praised the the gods with our own vessels, and God's hand showed up and wrote on the wall, and he messed himself in front of everybody. And unless you're in a Billy Madison movie, that's not cool, right? Just not cool. And so God not only makes a fool of him by using the hand, but he makes a fool of him by causing such terror that he... Uh, you know, number two, all over the place. It goes even better than that, though, because not only is he mocking then the king, but he's mocking these wise men and enchanters. Because what is written, as we read later, is menomenotechal parson, these, these four um, words, and they're in Aramaic. And if you're a wise man or an astrologer, a Chaldean, you bring in a, all of the wise men uh, there in Babylon, you say, hey, look at this. Aramaic is just like, it's a common tongue. It's something spoken by millions of their subjects. You're telling me not one guy in that whole crew knew Aramaic? These guys are dummies, 
Right? That's what it's saying. And not only could they not read it, but they couldn't interpret it. So maybe one guy finally stands up and says, yeah, it looks like Aramaic, but I don't know what, what numbered, numbered, um, measured, and found wanting means. Even though it seems relatively oddly, uh, re- relatively ob- obvious that it is not a good thing. But this is something that pride does, doesn't it? Pride works into us so deeply that we are not able to see the writing on the wall. Have you found this in your own life? Not in someone else's life, right? In your life have you found the inability to see the writing on the wall. The clear text of scripture saying, don't do this, do this. So pride allows us to uh, lie to ourselves here. And this is what we see going on with them. This illusion of certainty, this illusion of control. Either way, they're all shown to be fools. Uh, uh, Belshazzar's mother, who is the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, remembers Daniel. And she says, there was this guy, Daniel. And Daniel, he knew things. So Daniel is brought in, and Daniel is given the spiel, and he sees the writing on the wall. And I love what he says in verse 17. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Your rewards go to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known the interpretation. That really struck me. I don't know if that strikes you, but I, I underlined it as soon as I came across it because it tells me something important. It says Daniel cannot be bought. I mean, being the third, you know, most important ruler in the greatest kingdom of the world... I mean, that's not a bad job bump. I'm sure the pay bump goes with it, right? I mean, that's good news. Like, be like yeah, all you've got to do is read what God gave. I mean, and God said he's there. I mean, there'd be no sin in him taking on that. None that we can see anyway. But Daniel says, I'm not interested in your gold. I'm not interested in your silver. I'm not interested in your, your bronze, your iron, your wood, or your stone. I am not interested in that. But I'll give you what you want. Give it to somebody else. And so we see here an interesting Difference between the resident resident and the resident alien, especially in our day and in our culture, we're accumulating more, whether we're talking about stuff. Is Kathy here today? No, good, she can't yell at me for using stuff. For accumulating stuff or accumulating attention, which is another obsession of our culture. And either way, we crave more and more and more and more And that's that deep difference there because the resident alien is not interested. Daniel is not interested. He cannot be bought. There's an old hymn that uh, has been running around my brain lately. It says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. And I love that line, that last line, because I think... That we as a church have been caught up in the stuff that's going on in the world. All of the pride of life, all of the desire for more, all of the wants of the flesh and the eyes. But the Christian who is fixated on Christ finds more glory than anyone can find here. 10,000 charms. And if you sit here today and you say to yourself, man, that, that is not me. Uh, my first and foremost desire, as Paul pointed out, that my commitment is not to Jesus alone. You are in the exact right spot, right here, right now. Right here, right now, then, becomes the day of salvation for you. Right here, right now, becomes the moment where another line from that hymn, Come ye weary, 
heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And so what do we do when we realize that we are broken? What do we do when we realize we need repentance? What do we do when we realize that pride or arrogance or any other sin has infiltrated our lives and we're standing there with Belshazzar or we're standing with the mob that's just following Belshazzar? What do we do? I will arise and go to Jesus. And what will he do? He will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. And this is so important because Daniel says in verse 26 through 28, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mena, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. You will lose everything. And here is a message that no one wants to hear, but everyone needs to hear. There is an accounting. We worship a God, there is a God, whether you worship him or not, there is a God who will weigh lives one day. And all that we are and all that we do will be weighed in front of him. There's a verse, 1 Corinthians 5.10, which says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due in the body for what he has done, whether good or evil. You know, I hear this thing, people say it. They say, um, only God can judge me. Have you ever heard that before? People throw that. They always say that when they're doing something questionable, like all of a sudden, like only God can judge me. Or we hear our favorite, the favorite thing I hear all over the place these days is, you know, like judge not lest you be judged. The one verse of the Bible everybody knows, right? But the problem with both of those invocations is that Jesus' point is not to say, hey, listen, don't judge each other because it's okay. He says, don't judge each other because the God who knows your thoughts, your hearts, the things you did in secret, every single thing that you have done from the first breath to the last breath, that God is the one who's going to judge you. And the fact of the matter is, I would rather have any single one of you. In fact, as a group, you all can judge me before I have to stand before a living God. Do you really want God to judge you? And the answer is absolutely not, because I am a terrible person. Absolutely terrible. Ask Laura. She'll agree. And so we have this wonderful good news that that Daniel brings out This great hope because he's not afraid of judgment. As a resident alien, he says, I don't belong here. Judgment's coming for this world. This isn't my desire. My desire is for home. And what we see in Jesus is a reshaping of the human being so that we're different. Now we're set upon a new track. And and, and no longer are we even trying to be like Daniel. We're trying to be like Jesus. And the scriptures say we're being transformed from glory to glory as we grow into the fullness that is in Christ. And that is wonderful and powerful good news. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, and it pleads the merit of his blood. So venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. What good news. Paul says this at the end of his life. He says, uh, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge. And I would stop there and say, man, Paul of all people understands what he means when he says the righteous judge. The judge who knows all things. The judge who is perfect and pure in holiness. The judge who will judge us not according to what we ought to have been, but according to himself we're judged. And Paul says it flippantly. He says that righteous judge is going to come. And what is he going to do? 
He is going to give me a crown of righteousness. Will award me on that day the crown of righteousness. And if you hear my voice today, and you even just repent, right? You just turn your life over this morning. That crown of righteousness becomes yours because it's not based upon all the things that you've done. Thank God. It's based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to you, given to you. Not of your good works, but of his glory and love. And to all those, and I love this because this is kind of like us right here, right? I love this line, all those who have loved his appearing, which takes me back to Daniel. Can you be bought? Can you be bought this morning? Are your eyes so fixated upon the kingdom that is to come? Is your, is your citizenship so kept in heaven that you can't wait for Jesus to come back, to set up his kingdom, to elevate the meek, to give the poor in spirit the kingdom of God, to resurrect the dead, to make all things right? Do you long to see that day? Can't wait to see that day. And so let us find our hope here. Recognize our resident alien status set aside the things of the world, cast aside the weights of sin that have clung to us, cast aside this desire to be right, this desire for pride, this desire to be the center of attention, and and step forward looking upon Jesus and Jesus only and waiting, waiting, waiting for the day of his appearing. You with me this morning? Ponder these things. If at this moment you need to make a decision, um, If you need prayer, we'll be down here to pray. If you just want to make a decision in your seat, great, do that. Don't let this day pass without a new commitment to Jesus, without renewing your commitment to him, without redoubling your efforts to strive after him, to love him with all all, all your heart. Please stand as well as we sing this song.